If you have a connection to languages, this is the podcast for you. Whether you're a language learner, a language teacher, a language researcher, or anyone who's interested in languages. I'm Dr. Marie-Josée Bisson, and alongside my colleague, Dr. Caitlin Zavaleta, we are the language scientists, and this is our podcast. We are both senior lecturers in psychology at the Montford University, and we conduct research into the area of language learning. Throughout this series, we hope to translate the science behind language learning into informative and useful practical advice. So sit back and enjoy. Today, we are joined by Dr. Walter van Herven from the University of Nottingham, who will talk to us about language in the brain. Welcome, Walter. Hello. Uh, Walter is an associate professor in psychology at the University of Nottingham. He did uh, one year of a computer science uh, an undergraduate degree and ended up continuing with cognitive science. Uh, and this was at the University of Nijmegen in the Netherlands. He then completed a PhD also uh, in Nijmegen. And he did uh, one postdoc in Nijmegen and another one at the University of Aix-en-Provence. To finish, he took up a position at the University of Nottingham and he is still there today. I was extremely lucky to have Walter as my principal supervisor for my PhD, and I'm really excited to have him here today. So you're so welcome. Thank you. Now, before we jump into the topic of today, we always ask uh, our contributors to tell us a little bit about their language background. Would you mind? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, my first language, of course, is Dutch. Um, so I started learning uh, other languages uh, in school, at secondary school, so quite late. But I was, of course, exposed to a lot of other languages um, when I was a child through television. So I got quite a lot of input through German television because in my time when I was a child, there was not much television. Uh, certainly, there was only one channel in Holland, but there were quite a few channels that we could pick up from German television. So as a child, I watched a few times a week German television. So lots of German cartoons. So German cartoons and funny programs. So I, I got exposed to German. So I picked up, I think, a little bit of German that way. But in terms of formal education, it started uh, in secondary school with German, French and English. You did three languages at yeah, we, secondary school. We had to do three languages. That's amazing. To, to start with, yeah. And then if you were good at languages, you could continue. Of course, you could choose choose those languages. But uh, I just kept English as, as the, another language. So that's, uh, yeah, in, in Holland, you have to do English up to your exams. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And uh, now your German is still uh, still there, or I can understand it. I can read it, but speaking is a bit bit less. And, and, and French is is weaker than my German, but a little bit of understanding French, yeah. And uh, maybe when you spent a year in Aix-en-Provence, that uh, probably helped your French a little bit. There it as helped well. a little bit. Yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely. The exposure to French, uh, yeah, there was was quite uh, quite helpful. Yeah. So, how did you become interested in doing language research? Yeah, so that's quite interesting because, um, yeah, as you said, I started with computer science, um, not really knowing what I wanted to do with computer science. And um, yeah, I think I got inspired by reading a book actually on about cognitive science. And I discovered, oh, that's really interesting. It was about psychology. It was about uh, language, linguistics, uh, artificial intelligence. And then I discovered there was an opportunity to after one year of computer science to switch to cognitive science course, which was a three year course, which people could do after a year of psychology or linguistics or computer science. And 
when I started that course, I was very excited. There was really lots of interesting topics in terms of cognitive psychology and also language. And um, I had a fantastic teacher there who was very inspiring in terms of language research, psycholinguistics, and I ended up doing a project with him. And that was my start into into bilingualism. That's amazing because it's like that one event that has uh, made your career the way it is now today. Uh, exactly, all that yeah. research you've done in, in terms of, of language and language in the brain, bilingualism and, and, and all of that. So that all came from that one project that you did with that one inspired inspirational teacher yeah it's always so interesting to hear about how people ended up where they are now and like the journeys can the journeys can be so interesting um well so thank you for sharing that today i invited you here in particular because i wanted to ask you about language in the brain i think that's quite an interesting topic um, so as we get more and more fluent in another language and we, you know, we're learning more and more words and we sometimes learn words in both of these languages at the same time. So how does our brain cope with the different languages? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting and important question, of course, in terms of how, how the brain deals, deals with multiple languages. If you, if you learn another language, of course, you would need to have some organization in the brain of where these words are stored and new knowledge about the meaning and the new knowledge about how the words are pronounced, mm -hmm. how they are written. All that information needs to be stored. And the question is, you know, how is this stored? Is it not tightly stored in different areas of the brain or is it kind of a mixture where it's not clear where exactly this information is? And you would think that maybe the brain is smart and stores it all in separate locations and keeps it very nicely yeah. organized, but that's yeah, not how it is. In reality, and also, you know, obviously when you see models of, of language learnings or cognitive models, you know, you see those kind of boxes and arrows kind of things, and you have L1 for link the first language, L2 for the second language, as if those things are completely separate in the brain. But you're saying that is not it. No, that's, that's not the case. Uh, um, it, it would be very nice if it was the case that it was nightly, neatly organized in that way, but it, it clearly isn't. And and also, if even if it was kind of separated, of course, the brain is highly interconnected. The neurons are highly interconnected. That means even if there is a nice separation, it doesn't mean that they are not connected. Um, and that's very difficult to distinguish, you know, where it is and also whether or not it is connected. Um, and in terms of the, the the research has very clearly shown that most of the languages are, are in terms of where it is activated in the brain is very similar in terms of a first and second language. So you see very similar activation patterns uh, in terms of brain activity for a first and a second language. And then there's a lot of research that have looked at um, whether both languages are activated simultaneously or specifically for the language that is relevant at a particular moment, for example, if you speak. Yeah, in, because we're, I mean, we're both non-native speakers of English indeed. conversing here <laughs> easily-ish, I want to say. It's easy, I guess. Um, you know, we're speaking our non-native language. Why am I French not coming out and speaking to you? And why are you not speaking Dutch to me? You know? Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. That's that indeed it, that an amazing, not. amazing ability of, of bilinguals to be able to control their languages in such a way that we are not, you're not certainly speaking French and I'm, I'm not speaking Dutch. Um, so clearly the brain has developed um, very effective control mechanisms uh, to prevent yourself speaking the wrong language to a person that doesn't speak that language. Now, it doesn't mean that this is perfect because you're might notice in our 
conversation that mm -hmm. there might slip a, a word of another language in there. Um, so it's not clearly not perfect. And there's a lot of research looked at looking at uh, speech errors, for example. And Caitlin's research. Oh, who, yeah. my co-host yeah. we have actually an episode on her research uh, which is yeah. on speech errors yeah uh, and she loves them basically but yeah we had this conversation where i i mean i hate it when i make a mistake i feel so embarrassed you know when i'm speaking in english to somebody and suddenly something comes out in french and it's so odd and i feel so weird about it but she was always like wow let's think about this beautiful mistake and why did it happen and what does it tell in, us indeed yeah it's very informative in terms of how the how the languages um are activated actually all the time so these uh, things can happen and of course if you speak to someone who is multilingual and then when you, then you see that bilinguals use multiple languages just use the word that is most appropriate for the context but if that's not the case if you speak to someone who doesn't speak the same languages as yourself you need to have effective control mechanisms mm -hmm. bilinguals are quite good at that but it doesn't mean that the other languages are not active how do we know that the other languages are active at the same time yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, so how can we investigate the activation of multiple languages? Now, you can do that in various ways. Um, you can do that by presenting material multiple, multiple languages, but also you can use specific material, that um, word material or sentence material that has some similarity across languages. So for example, if you think about single words, so my research is mostly focused on single words. Uh, there are words that exist in both languages that have the same meaning, and these words are called cognates, mm -hmm. and they can be they can have the same written form or the same spoken form. They sound very similar, but a cru crucial thing is that they have the same meaning. So, for example, uh, a word like film is in is in Dutch word, is an English word, and that's a, a cognate. And then you have words that are called false friends that are valid words in two languages, but they have completely different meanings. Mm -hmm. So an example in Dutch and English is the word uh, room. Uh, in Dutch, it's pronounced as room. Um, in Dutch, it means cream, but in English, of course, it means a room. So is the <laughs> spelling of the Dutch word the same as the English word? Yeah, and in, it's it, exactly the same spelling. And in some cases, you have words that have the same spelling, but also very similar uh, pronunciation. Mm -hmm. These kind of words, of course, are very interesting because what happens if you present these words to a bilingual that has the knowledge of Dutch and English? Um, will they be aware of the existence of that word in two languages? And well, how do, we, do would they pronounce the word, for example, and what meaning will become available? So if they are seeing only Dutch words, is it the case that they would interpret as as cream, as the Dutch word, and, and pronounce it like Rome? Or would they then still consider it as an English word? And so that's an interesting question. And that kind of material can give you insight in terms of the activation of both languages. Is that is that the case? Is both languages are activated uh, or not? Um, so homographs are so homographs, or they're also called false friends. Uh, is interesting material cognates and you have also material that is kind of words that have a very similar orthographic form in two languages and that gives you also an opportunity to look at the role of orthographic similarity between two languages um, and you can investigate whether the orthographic similarity to words in another language influences how people process those words 
Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, we we also have an episode on orthographic, cross-linguistic orthographic similarity. Yeah. Obviously, I've, I've done some research on that as well. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Although I did not use cognates in my research, and I know that you've you've uh, used um, cognates in, in yours. So can you tell us what you found out then? Because I know you did that project with uh, the false friends, false the, friends the, yeah. the home example, yeah? Yeah, the, yeah. The, the cream and Dutch and uh, room in, in English. Um, what did you find? Yeah, so th this this study was specifically looking at the question um, when you when you present those words to participants, are participants able to just focus on English and just ignore that Dutch? If that is the case, then processing words like room would be no different from other English words that uh, do not exist in Dutch. However, if the Dutch plays a role, then the processing of this word uh, room would be affected by Dutch knowledge. And so that was the kind of question, because there was some evidence in the literature presented where they argued that people are able to control the languages in such a way that you, you don't see influences of the other language. And that's specifically in one particular language context, so you only present English words. So we, we, we did an, an fMRI study, so in an MRI scanner, we uh, scanned the brains of people uh, doing a very simple task, just deciding whether letter strings are correct English words or not. Um, and part of the material were those false friends and then carefully matched control words that were just English words. Yeah. And then we, we looked at the brain imaging data to see which area differ than from a normal English words. Uh, and what we found was that in terms of response times, in terms of how fast people decide whether it's an English word or not, you see that people are much slower when they are English, uh, when these are uh, for these false friends compared to control words. Okay, so there's a... So there's a behavioral kind of uh, effect. A slowing down effect. slowing down yeah. effect, uh, because people realize oh, these are also in, uh, Dutch words yeah. and they have to decide whether it's an English word. Yes. So what to do? It, it makes a bit of a, a slight conflict. Exactly. Yeah. And it was this conflict that yeah. we were very much interested in. So what kind of conflict is happening there? Because it could be at the level of the fact that people realize that this word has two meanings, yeah. a meaning in Dutch and a meaning in English. It has two pronunciations. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, also, it has a conflict in terms of what to respond. Is it yes, is it an English word, or is it no, because it's, it's a Dutch word. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, where what was really useful is then to look at the brain imaging data, because that can give us some kind of indication of uh, what kind of conflict it is. And looking at the brain imaging data, it was very clear there were two uh, main areas in the brain that, that showed the difference. And there was an area in the medial frontal uh, area of the brain, um, which is very sensitive to what they call response conflict. Yeah. And another area, it was the left and the right uh, prefrontal cortex, which is an area that is to do with uh, control and um, um, so language control. Cognitive control, yeah. Cognitive control and retrieval as well of information. So those two areas don't tell us really very much uh, about the potential of these different conflicts, because it could be both that are responsive to response conflict or stimulus conflict. So the critical comparison that we then did was we changed, we, we did exactly the same experiment, but rather than telling people you need to decide whether each letter string is an English word, 
we told them you need to decide whether it's a word and it doesn't matter which language. Ah, okay. So it was a very subtle change. Yes, but it would lead to the same response. It would be be a yes kind of response. In terms of response conflict, there isn't because they would answer yes to each. Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't matter whether it's a Dutch or English word. In all these cases, they can press yes. So there should be no response conflict. And when we then looked at the brain imaging data, it was really surprising because we saw no activation in the medial frontal cortex. Um, that was completely gone, but there was still uh, activity in the left and right prefrontal cortex. And that means that the response conflict is really um, located in this medial frontal uh, cortex. So it was due to the language themselves being both activated? Yeah, it was because both languages are in both cases activated, but in one case, the, it didn't matter which response. Uh, whether, well, it, it, it mattered in the sense they had to press yes for any language, so there was no response conflict. And that means that that particular area of the brain is very sensitive to response conflict uh, for in, in terms of the uh, whether or not it is an English word or not. While the other areas are to do, still there was... Uh, stimulus-based conflict, the fact that there are two main meanings and two pronunciations. Mm-hmm. That was the case in both experiments. But um, you saw a difference between those particular words that are words in English and Dutch compared to control words that are just mm-hmm. English words. So exactly. the fact that a word could also be a word in Dutch, it required the brain to do something extra, basically. I- indeed. Even indeed. if it led to the same answer. Exactly. The fact that, you know, the brain reacted in a way like kind of a warning bell, Two languages here. Which one do you want? Yeah. So it is some sort of yeah. Yeah. There's still there's still this conflict because there's there's information in terms of two meanings. There's information of two uh, pronunciations, and that means that the brain is even though you tell uh, you, it's not relevant for the decision in its in itself. The brain activates this information automatically, and it's. It's something you cannot really control. There's a lot of other evidence suggesting that you, you can't really prevent this from happening. And also it's in a sense quite good, of course, because if you if you restrict yourself to only one language, it means that if somebody starts talking to you in another language, you wouldn't understand this person, which is mm-hmm. a bit off. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And obviously it's really good that we have this, this mechanism that helps us control which language is for the right situation. Um, and I wanted to ask you, because I, for myself personally, I find that if I've been speaking in English for so long and then suddenly I do want to speak French, but it's like the, the cognitive control, because it's stopped the French for so long, suddenly I do want it to come out, but it's difficult. Obviously I can do it, but it's a bit more, it feels like it's not fluent and it's, it yeah. requires almost more effort to speak my native language. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting phenomena, and I think a lot of people have that experience that um, that it then becomes very difficult to to suddenly switch to another language. Um, I think the important thing here is that it's that this is to do that with speaking, which is very different from the research on in terms of reading and processing written words. And I think in speaking, of course, you have this uh, you need this control very much, um, and so that's where the control really can prevent other. Um, representations to to become active Um, and certainly over a longer time you would expect that this mechanism has some influence although you can still probably find effects of the 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 other language and it's just more difficult it's 
The other aspect there is, of course, when you're speaking one language and you don't speak the other language for a long time, the representation itself also kind of gradually become less active as a whole. That means it takes a bit of time to reactivate those representations. So there's kind of two aspects, I think, that, that play a role in this kind of phenomena that people have experienced. Yeah. It's really interesting. And of course, we didn't have time too much to talk about how um, we talked about bilinguals when, you know, people at the end of the language learning journey. But what happens as you start to learn another language? Obviously, these mechanisms have to come into place straight away, like automatically, obviously. Um, and with children as well, as they as children that grow up hearing two languages, you know, we're saying today, you know, we've got this strong cognitive control mechanism. They're not going to be confused. They're going to know very you know, quickly and automatically, which language is appropriate for which situation because of this cognitive control. Exactly. Yeah. I think children pick that up very quickly in terms of what other languages people are speaking. And so a bilingual child will, will, will detect that immediately. And when the person cannot speak the other language, they will just focus on uh, that language that the person understands. Brilliant. So before we finish, um, is there one thing that you'd like people to remember from today's episode? I think I think there's a just important thing to realize that the brain is not, not neatly organized in, in terms of we don't languages. have tidy boxes in our brain. There, there are no tidy boxes there. Um, it's all integrated. It's one system, one language system. Um, and of course, in that language system, there is some information to what language a particular word belongs to. Yeah, because that's relevant when you speak. Um, so that information is definitely there. Um, and the other thing is that. When you are processing one language or when you're reading one language, it's not the case that then you're restricting yourself to that language. It's still the case that possible candidates, possible words in both languages are always activated. And so they can influence this process uh, of, of reading words, for example. Yeah, so that's amazing. You know, our, our languages are intermixed. All the words are intermixed. There is some sort of tag that you know, tells us what language each word is in, but they're all mixed in together in one big pot. And it's yes. definitely not separate. We know this now from the research. Um, so that's, I think, really interesting for people to know. And also the fact that both of your languages are active at the same time to the level of right before you start to speak or the output. And of course, it can influence some of the process. From what you've said to us in your research project, you did it at the level of just reading. So they were mm -hmm. both active and we saw you explained how that um, slowed down some of the responses, for example, but also with the brain imaging as well, how that was represented. But when we speak as well, you know, both, both languages are activated all the way to the end and that's how you get those speakers speech errors and then these intrusions. Um, so this has been a really fantastic episode. I feel like we've, we've touched on so many different things. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Walter, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have you. Now, in the next podcast, we will be talking to Dr. Jiayi Wang about pragmatics in language learning, what they are and why they're important. Uh, to find more information about this topic or about our podcast, please visit our webpage, languagescientists.dmu.ac.uk. This is where you can go to ask questions, to leave comments, or even to take part in some of our current research. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening, and thank you for De Montfort University for funding this series of the podcast. I'm Dr. Marie-Josée Bisson, and you've been listening to the Language Scientists podcast. <laughs>